Welcome to the Productivity Mastery Podcast, presented to you by myself, Stoyan Yankov, Productivity and Performance Coach, Keynote and TEDx Speaker, and co-author of the Perform Methodology, and the book, Perform, The Unsexy Truth About Startup Success. Join me on a journey to discover what some of the world's leading professionals do to be more productive, create peak performing teams, and build successful global companies. New episodes weekly. And now, enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Productivity Mastery. You guys are in for a special episode today. You're in for a treat. My guest today is a very, very important person, very inspiring person. He was born in the Farios Islands. I hope I pronounced it well. He did move to Denmark and co-founded Bugart, a company, his uh, startup, his first exit, after which in 2009, Heine co-founded and grew this little app called Vivino that became the largest wine app in the world with nearly 61 million users and a database of 15.8 million wines. I'm sure most of you are using it. Vivino received a total of 221 million and more in funding and currently is the market leader. Heidi himself is a serial entrepreneur, he's a serial investor, he's a board member of a number of organizations. His story was recently featured in the Amazon Prime documentary, Disrupting Wine, A Life of an Entrepreneur. Make sure to check this out. He's also, I would say, not just a, a great role model and achiever, but somebody who's, who's exceptional in giving back. He is the founder and host of Roll Startup. Write the note, Roll Startup. Go check it out on YouTube. It's a platform educating founders and startups to work smarter and to grow, where Hani is sharing his experience from the world of entrepreneurship. It's not some basic theories. The guy is talking about lessons that he learned from his journey. I'm super honored to welcome today Hani Zahiri Yasin. I hope I pronounced your name right. Thank you very much, Stalin. I mean, so many nice words uh, there. I'm, I'm not sure what to say, but um, very pleased to be here and excited to our you know, talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and what we're doing. Yeah, thank you so much, Hani, first of all, for for the contribution you're making the, to the to the startup community with, uh, you know, not just building your startups, but investing back, mentoring, uh, sharing all your knowledge through freely through through your channels, Rose Startup. So so thanks for that. But well, let's start uh, unveiling your story with uh, with your humble beginnings. Uh, tell me about the Farios uh, Islands your early days and and yeah. were there any hints in the early days that you're actually going to become an entrepreneur i, I think the Faroe islands are a, a very special place they're, they're in the middle of the north atlantic so they are between scotland and iceland and norway sort of a triangle in the middle of nowhere in between there so fifty thousand people uh, and as you can imagine uh, very very small and and back when i grew up there really wasn't much there um so so I think yes, there were there there might have been signs that I wanted to do, to build something, to do something. I think I always had that sort of drive to hey, I want to change the world. I want to I want to do things differently. So, uh, and there was always some action around me, I guess. So so maybe there were some signs, but I wouldn't say there were a lot of opportunities back then. Uh, since then, it has evolved so much up there that we, you know, we've had a. Michelin restaurant up there. There's a fantastic food scene and so on. But when I grew up, there was not much of any food or wine or anything like that. That's for sure. So what was the point of no return? Like, did you join a hackathon? Like, when did you say, okay, I need to, I need to start building stuff? Yeah, I think, I think when it comes to that, and like, I just turned 50 years old, had a big birthday in the Faroe Islands, which was amazing. So when you look back 30 years, not just in the Faroe Islands, but also in Denmark and most of Europe, there really wasn't much of anything in that sort of way. So, so you sort of get dragged into it slowly and say, okay, this is fun. Let's try and build something. I uh, I personally never really joined these communities or went down. We just, we just started doing it. it. It was more like that back then. I love that there's so many opportunities to do it now, but, but it, it wasn't very big back then. So tell me about Bugart. You yeah. guys started it. Was it the goal that you wanted to make an exit? 
So I, I came in uh, very early on. Uh, I actually wasn't a, a co-founder there, but I sort of ran the company most throughout the first years. It was it was quite a funny story because I was with uh, a guy named Morton and Thais, who later became my co-founder at Vivino. And and what they had done, is especially Morton, they had they had made this deal with this peer-to-peer -peer platform called Kazaa. You remember Kazaa? Like there was Napster and then Kazaa came after that. And uh, they were using them as distribution for security. So wanted to build a, a company on top of that. And really the idea of, of Bulgard was to, um, to build some security and we used Kazaa as distribution. So we were like sitting on this crazy rocket engine because Kazaa was the biggest thing like like Napster was huge back then, and trying to monetize that, but you know it went well. We built a great security product. Um, I went out. I can't remember in, uh, in 08 or nine or something and sold what I had, but actually it it, it was sold to Symantec only like a couple of years ago. So it stayed around for a very very long time, and it's still around as a brand, but it was sold to Symantec a couple of years ago. And and I just wanna wanna get a bit of context of, of uh, the moment you were about to start Vivino, like, uh, were you rich at that time? What was your situation? Like, what was the context? And, uh, you know, did you, did you have to, um, what were the, tell my mom. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, I made a little bit of money from, from the Bulgard experience. Really. When I say a little bit, I mean a little bit. And so I could sort of survive and, but the idea was really to quickly try and raise some money so we at least could live somehow, and and we managed to do so. But but so but but like why did I go in that direction? I think one of the the important things is like I was sort of at that point conscious of okay, good, we're gonna do something else now. What's it gonna be? And and at that point you really have a choice, you you know, and, and you make a conscious choice. Hey, this is where I want to go. And for me it was like hey. Like security was never a passion of mine. Like I love building a business. I love building a company, but like security is is a really good business, but it's it's not fun. And I said to myself, "Hey, I want to do something that's more fun." And and that's when wine came in. And I worked on a couple of other ideas, but but the problem in wine just seemed really obvious to me. And if we could solve that, that'd be amazing. And it was a personal pain of mine too. Right. And as I understand at the time you already had a family, kids. Yeah. Um, was it difficult to to make this choice and to, to run into this risky startup again? Yeah, I, I think I think it was. I I'm not sure I thought too much about it, honestly. I mean, um, you know, my wife has always been incredibly supportive and taking good care of the family. And and it's not like I had a lot of other hobbies and stuff. Like I did two things and that was my work and my family. So I tried to dedicate as much time as I could to the family too. Um, but but uh, yeah, sure, it's difficult. And, and when we talk about risk, it's like, for me, I just don't see it as that. It's like, yeah, this is what I do. And, um, and uh, sure, it'd be less risk to get a job at a bank or something, but that's not what I want to do. So this is what I do. So I never thought about it as risky. And, and people from the outside might think like I'm this crazy risk taker, but I never saw myself as that. You know, I'm talking to you now and you have this calm sort of like very confident uh, voice, but I wonder what was in the early days. I had a conversation with the, the founder of the first Bulgarian uh, unicorn company, a fintech company called uh, Payhawk. And he said the first four years, and he just got a kit when he started. So the first four years uh, was uh, insane. Uh, yeah. The amount of hours he would work until 9 p.m., then spend some time with the family, no time to rest. And and I wonder what was it for you? Like, because we do, we talk a lot about success in in the entrepreneurial community, but I want to know the how did you balance out? How many hours per week did you have to work in the early days? Yeah. And how do you manage to to make it work? Uh, I, yeah, I think for me it just it was just like fluid, right? I I tried to be there for the family. I had this rule that I wanted to be at home at between six and eight. So I, when you have small kids, you pretty quickly figure out that if you're not home or with the kids by eight o'clock, well, you're never going to see them. You're just never going to see them. So I tried to have this rule where between six and eight, I was always with the family. That's in, in, in the evening, right? 
and um, and I think that was really quite important rule. And um, but but what is work and and what is family and and hours? I think it's hard to say because I thought about this all the time. And look, you wake up at seven in the morning, you have your laptop right next to you, and you do a couple of emails, and that that's just. That's just the way I operate. It doesn't mean it's good for everybody, but it works for me. So again, I, I want to be really careful with sort of giving advice. People say, hey, don't touch your phone within the first hour. Look, I, I touched my phone within the first three seconds of waking up. That's that's the way that works for me. And I think it's fine. I just don't want to give advice to other people. People can do whatever, should do whatever works for them. I think this is the best advice. Like we can, we can come and share as many tips and this is what you should do but at the end of the day everybody's different yeah. uh, everybody has different contexts so, so as long as it works for you test it right of course uh, keep on going and it's not going to be always a perfect journey obviously but uh, at least if you're making mistakes you're going to make them on your terms instead of hey this guy told me to do this and, and then you make a mistake and you feel really bad about it because yeah. it wasn't at least your thought um, but, but i will add to that just also be truthful to yourself right and don't just say it works for you. Listen to yourself. Listen to your body. And see. So is it really working for yourself, right? So make sure it's true to, not just something you say. Do you, do you think do you think part of your success as an entrepreneur is also connected to the fact that you don't, at least that's my assumption, you don't seem to care what other people think. You're just making your own choices. Yeah. Um, I think that matters, but I, again, I, I think maybe people's impression is that I, I don't, I, I don't think care what certain people think, and but I do think what think about what people think. Meaning, look, I want to do well. I, I want to do. I want to be successful. All those other things, um, but I'm not going to have some like stupid vanity around where you have to have a fancy car or this and that. And I'm just going to do my thing. Like, this is what I believe in. I'm going to go for this. So so I do think about what other people think, but I want that to be like the right people, not just some random dude or, or whatever. I love it. Love it. So so early days of Vivino. So you guys started, uh, you decided about wine. You're passionate. I read somewhere you've been initially working from a basement, uh, kind of working on the thing. True. Um, so, so then you, you meet, uh, again with, uh, with Thais, you, you know each other well, you, you, you yeah. present him the idea and as I understand, there were many wine ups at the time. So you were not the first, no. was that not discouraging for you? Like, why did you decide we, we actually have a shot? Yeah. No, I think, I think, uh, when you look at something like this, what you really need to look at is, or ask yourself is, is this problem solved or not? Or maybe it's someone so far ahead of you that you're not going to catch them. Maybe even if the problem isn't solved yet, these guys are so far ahead, I'm not going to be able to catch these guys. I looked at the market, and again, I don't look a lot at competition. It's just usually you should sort of peek at the competition once in a while. You should not spend a lot of time. You do you and just push forward. So for me, um, when we talk about competition, we always say, hey, competition is good, and we somewhat mean that. But when we, when we do a new startup, competition is good because that shows that many people are thinking about this problem. probably hasn't been solved yet. There's no real winner yet. So, so no, a lot of people out there is a good thing. The question is, can you do it better, and can you actually get, you know, get to that point? And at that time also, I wasn't 100% sure this was a winner-takes-all. It could have been a you know a few winners in different niches and so on. So I just definitely thought, yeah, there's room that we can win enough in this space for sure. A business is a team sport, and uh, you had the the chance to to work with somebody you trusted. Was it hard to sell him on the idea? Let's let's build this wine up. Yeah, I think it it uh, it took a while. Um, and like back then, and this is we we talk about you know what people think about you and so on. A lot of things that I do when I do them early on, I know that people are sort of laughing a little bit in the corners like, I mean, what the hell is he doing now? Like a wine app? What is he thinking? And I know this. People said it to me. He said, yeah, well, you're, you're building a wine app. What the fuck? And, and you have to live through that and say, no, I believe in this. I'm just going to go for it. 
and and when I started to do my my YouTube channel, Raw Startup, I mean, if you can't bear to be ridiculed a little bit, then it's really hard to get started. And it's fine that they laugh a little bit at you. Like, they probably love you and, and think it's a little bit fun, and it's fine. So I don't know where the question started. But anyway, um, it's selling him on the idea. Obviously, Tyson and I had, had trust for many years, uh, so that really helped. And the fact that I believe in something takes him to a certain level. And, and I think there were certain things that sort of said, okay, there is, there is a potential here. Also, he was like me, like a sort of a, a novice wine drinker that didn't know much about wine, but wanted to learn and loved drinking wine. So he also saw the problem. Uh, so yeah, we, we got there for sure. It is such an important lesson as well. Uh, and, and, you know, you're working a lot with startups. I, I visit and meet and coach many of them. And and one of the main reasons startups fail is misalignment of co-founders and team. Yeah. Uh, so it's a blessing when you find the right one. It shouldn't be something that you hurry on. Uh, so yeah. great, great about that. But but let's continue on the... on the um, what, what was the the main thing at the beginning like I, as i understood you you wanted to create a database and be ahead of the game and how did you guys build the database yeah so so first we built everything from scratch right so so it's not like there was any shortcut hey let's plug into this and get the ball rolling so we built it totally from scratch and um, and that is obviously really really quite tricky because you have to release a product that is not ready at all um if you want to release a product when it's ready, you'd have to wait, you have to build for five, 10 years and then release it. And by then somebody else has taken the market. So there's this weird balance of release a product that's good enough. So at least there's a chance that whoever uses it is going to use it again. So we used all kinds of hacks to sort of give the impression that, hey, we're building something here and it's not perfect yet. We know that, but we're trying to do, to move this thing forward. And and uh, yeah, it's, it's a chicken and egg because you want all those users on to look at all this data, but you don't really have the data yet, and you're building data at the same time. So we did this competitions to get people to try and upload pictures. Then we had a full team in India to add data to those pictures. And and also, you know, the whole idea of Levino is you take a you get a picture of a wine bottle and you get all this information, right? And like we claimed that we knew 30% of all the wines that people did, it was more like 10% probably. But what we did have is a big team in India. So as soon as somebody scanned something, it would go to the data team. They would put data on it and then come back to the users. Hey, we found the wine now and put some data on it, right? So people said, okay, you know, I'll give it another shot. At least my wine list here, which was basically just pictures, now there is some data on it. So I'll try again later. So it's a really, it's, it's a tricky thing to build these products that are uh, very, very far from perfect and maybe very, very far from good too, I. Sometimes I compare Apple and Google on this. Is like Apple is one of the best product companies in the world, right? Uh, they're just incredibly good at building product products. But but they they love living in sort of closed ecosystems where they control everything, right? So the reason why their product is good, they try and stay in those areas. And once they they tried to build Apple Maps, it was shit. They didn't know how to deal with that, right? And if you can compare that to Google, Google is more of a data company. They're used to imperfect data. I mean, they could build a wine app, like in theory, where Apple couldn't, right? So, so perfectionism is really your enemy when it comes to building these kinds of products. And one of the one of the challenges of uh, especially early stage founders is is to find their focus because um, there's so many things you could do and you're excited, you're passionate, you want to try things out. I wonder if you guys, how did you decide, you know? hey, for the next month or a couple of months, we're going to focus on building this thing with this competition with the Indian kind of office. Like, like, how did you kind of organize and manage your energy? Do you have any specific, I don't know, methodology you use? Or like, yeah. hey. We... I think this is one of the strengths of, of Tyson and me as, as co-founders, right? I'm not saying we're super focused um, individually, but I tell you, when we're together, we're incredibly focused. You know, we're, we agree on... What is the end goal here? We're trying to build. So, so with Vino, it's really not that complicated, right? We're trying to build a product that helps people drink better wine. And, and that means that whatever wine you have in front of you right now, I want to be able to tell you if it's good or not so good. Anything you do that doesn't help that move you towards that goal, you shouldn't be doing. And, and Tyson and I have been really good at policing each other on that. Saying, yeah, well, 
do you really think that's going to do it? And just keep focusing, keep grinding through to work towards that goal. And and in a product like this, it's about you know improving the product, you know, zero point one percent every day. There's no silver bullets. You just keep going, keep going. And after a year, suddenly your product's pretty damn good because you stayed in your lane and kept improving the core of the product. Yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge, right? Like uh, to learn to say no to all these shiny things. Yeah. You know, the shiny object syndrome. Like uh, there's so many interesting. There's a lot of, of them. Yeah. So, but but but, oh, I also love like you call it a goal or like it could be a, a mission or a purpose. Like what you guys like in one sentence, you understand what you guys do. I mean, the product could change, but yeah, it's it's one mission that everybody is around, and and everything you guys do needs to contribute massively to this yes. to this thing. But it probably took some time for you to find it, or you guys already started with this assumption. Now we started with. The, I'm not sure how clear it was, how how literally we said it early on, but I think it was pretty clear from day one. Look, I walk into a supermarket, I see a wall of wine. I need to find a wine that's good. I need to find if this wine in front of me is any good or not. That's a pretty, you know, it's pretty simple. It's really hard to solve, but but try and find those simple things. And this is what I want to do. Obviously, three five years down the line. It might be other things, but this is the core of what's important for us right now. So 2010, you guys already kind of have some traction uh, and you start seeking uh, funding and uh, you end up uh, convincing Janos Fries, co-founder of Skype, who decided to invest. Um, and I wonder how, how big of an impact was that? And maybe maybe because there's there's many listeners now, founders who are like, how do you convince the co-founder of uh, of Skype to to invest in us? Like like what was the actual story behind this? Yeah, so I I knew him a little bit from before, right? So so this is a thing that when you're a second time sort of or a serial entrepreneur, you have some advantages, right? So I knew him a little bit before. Uh, he was the only angel I pitched. Flew to London and said, "Hey, how about this?" Um, and um, after a little bit of back and forth, he said, "Yeah, let's let's try this." He's passionate about wine. Um, he'd seen what we'd built, uh, Tyson and I, with with Bullgard, where he was a little bit involved on the sidelines too. And and I remember, so I didn't really know what I was doing back then, honestly. So I thought it'd be a good idea to get Atomico on board. And I mean, it was too early stage for Atomico. Uh, but Giannis has since told me this story that that there was a partner meeting at Atomico where he was involved at the time. And they said, no, this is this is just not for us. And Janos later referred from that meeting and said, hey, I know Tyson Heine. This is not much right now, but they're going to keep going until it works. I'm going to invest. And that's what he said. And that's how he concluded. Yeah, I'm going to go for this. So he bet on the on the jockey, not on the horse initially. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure the horse, the horse is so important when you're riding. But yeah. Um, but yes, I, I think... Um, uh, he he believed in that, but at the early stage, that's what you have, right? I mean, there's an idea, but idea could even change and all kinds of things. It's all about the people. It's in the early stage, can these people execute or not? And how much of an impact was having him on board as an investor? Was he also an advisor, helping you with the strategy and uh, to stay focused on the right things? No, uh, not very much. Uh, he. Uh, but his name was important, right? It, it gave us some credibility uh, that, hey, so this guy who founded one of the biggest you know, startups ever to come out of Scandinavia um, was backing us, and he didn't back that many people. So yes, I think it was really important for us, although he wasn't very involved in the sort of day-to-day. So you guys started growing, and, and obviously when you're growing, you need to hire people. Um, was there any any lessons you learned from from hiring? Like, I'm just wondering, what, what was the thought process? Do people have to be excited about wine? Or do they have to be exceptionally good and talented in what they do? Did you decide, let's hire more young people so we can teach them in our culture? Like, how was the thought process of hiring? Yeah, so, so most people we hired were not in the wine industry. I think there is something there. Uh, the wine industry is an old, like... It's it's a different industry to what we do, right? And you think to yourself like, if the wine industry was really fast moving and so on, why did a guy from the Faroe Islands, where there's no wine, based in Copenhagen, where there's wine, no wine production, why did they start this wine app? Why was this not started in Bordeaux or in Napa, right? So clearly, uh, the wine industry is not the most innovative industry in the world, 
and I do think that is true. It's just it's a slow moving industry, but it's also an industry that where moving slow and using tradition has worked really well. So why would they change that, right? Um, but but um, so no, we didn't didn't hire people from the industry uh, very much. I think I, I mean that that's a that's almost like a full book. Who should you hire, and 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 who should you not hire? I think I think one of my learnings I've I've always felt that I've had incredibly good people around me um but i think at some point i also realized that um obviously there's a little bit of luck here and there but also that we've been really good at leading people um and getting the best out of people and maybe not as good at hiring as we initially thought as as uh, initially as i thought at least so i've always been really good at at getting the most out of people and and we've done really well uh, but maybe sometimes we could have gotten better people, but but who knows? And, and did you did you guys kind of uh, you know when did you start uh, realizing hey we need to we need to really talk about our culture and what do we stand for? Um, was that early in the days? Later on, so so you can in a way kind of sustain this culture when when you grow and scale bigger. Yeah, I think for Tys and me, culture is so important that it's totally ingrained in us. So. Uh, it's it's not something we talk about. It's just we are the culture, and we are and we live the culture. Um, so so for us that was just so obvious. It's just like this is this is who we are. This is how we do things. So when we were a smaller company, say you know sub fifty people, we didn't have to talk about those things. We we were the culture, um, and we always understood that culture is number one. That's what drives the company. It's that you can set all kinds of goals, but what you actually do and how you behave, your actual culture, that's what moves moves the company. So, so we're always very, very conscious of it. And were there any challenges when you started growing and you have to hire a lot of people? Like maybe somebody breaches the culture, the values, do something that's not really accepted by the culture and norm. Like, like how did you deal with that? Yeah, I think if culture is not something that you start and then it just stays like it is and just it's fine as soon as somebody does something they shouldn't do they need to get the hell out of here and we were very consistent on that like there's no bs there's no i mean i've lived in the u.s for many many years and uh, and one of the challenges i think in the u.s is that it's it, everything's a gray zone right so so sometimes you can be overbearing if that guy's the quarterback like it's okay for him to do these things, but this other guy he can't do it. So I'm, I am, I have no comfort. I don't care if you're the best sales guy on the team. You are out if you do something wrong. And I, I think that's always been a problem in the U.S. And I think it's one of the big sort of challenges for the U.S. society is that, well, he's rich or he's the QB. Let's see if we can. There's a gray zone. If he has a good attorney, maybe we'll let him go. That's total effing bullshit. Equal consequences for everybody. And it's always been like that. Man, I'm so happy you're talking about that. I want to dig a little bit deeper on that because I think so many of us are struggling, myself included. Like sometimes you 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 do a hiring mistake, right? Because you know you can't really evaluate the person, whatever. So and and later you understand this person is not a, a good fit for us. But but it's so hard to fire them, and you kind of yeah, we'll coach them into that. It's like I've I've done this mistake being too late to to fire or to let somebody go so can you maybe tell us how, how do you like both you and dice had this kind of as a, as a mindset like like how do you acquire this okay done out yeah yeah i i think when it comes to the smaller things honestly i don't think we were always quick enough to to get rid of a, like this person's just gonna that always took a while because maybe of our like humane side or whatever but if people clearly stepped in, on the wrong side, we were very com there was instant consequences right away. Um, so, so I, I agree with you. That part can be really quite tricky uh, when people, especially when people try, right? Uh, but, but you know, it has to be done. Sometimes it's no fun, but it has to be done. And very often, uh, the people that are let go, in the end, also, you know, become like happier because they they couldn't deliver or it didn't work, and and so on. One thing I always say when when you have these situations, you have to let people go is, you know, make sure that when they leave your company, they have a story 
to tell their partner. Um, so, so when they come home, they're going to go home and talk to somebody they love and they need to have a story. And that I think really helps on both sides saying, if you can explain to them a story, this is why this is, and this is why we have to do this. Um, it makes everything easier if they in their head can see, oh, I have a story I can tell my partner at home when I come home. That's always been something that's been important for me and has worked really well. Oh, that's a great advice. Um, I, I feel like we can always treat people well, and sometimes they're not they're just not the right fit. Uh, in no. many cases, they're not a bad person. Actually, you can no. you can in most cases they're not a bad person, yeah. Yeah, just the way they work, the way the, the, the principles and values that stand for, it's not exactly what we stand for, but but you can always take care of people. You can have the the conversations and tell them, okay, look, we're doing things this way. Last couple of weeks, you do three times differently. If you continue doing that, we need to let you go, right? Like it's not just coming out of like having the clear conversations with people, putting the yeah, right expectations. I mean, it's easier to say, hard to do, right? Because it's the yeah. day when we're busy. But, but again, um, okay. So, so you've been you're building now, uh, Vivino. You're growing, and when was the time that you kind of felt? All right, something something's happening. You know, we have this this traction right now that's you know exploding in terms of uh, downloads of the app, the the activity. And, and did you freak out like when when that happened? I uh, I I don't freak out too much, honestly. But um, uh, but but yeah, in my head, I really did. It's like it's it's. I think so. So let's say it all started around late 2012. It was pretty clear. In early 2012, we'd released like a major upgrade of the app. It, it we spent a few months on improving it, and then from like April 12 to December 12, we grew really, really fast, like incredibly fast. Okay, we got something, and at the same time, like investors are coming to us saying, "Hey, what's up, guys? Let's talk. Let's talk." At the time, I had a little bit of money, and the team wasn't very big, so we didn't have to raise money. Ended up doing like a, a tiny round in December. Because I just held back and said, no, no, I don't want to raise any more money, although multiple people wanted to put money in. And, and again, that's um, that's not advice. I would give other people, take the, the effing money when you can get it. But I was super confident, like, I'm going to wait a little bit. And in, like, in the office I had in December, we ended up raising in May of 13, and value was 3x in those, like, five months. And those things can happen a certain part of the journey, um, but you know you have to be a little confident to 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 say yeah I can I, I can do that. But around that time, I think for a lot of startups, um, and I think maybe a lot of people that have tried this too, when you raise an A round, I think that's a pivotal moment. That at least for me it was. Uh, when we raised that back then, ten million dollars, I was like, holy crap! Some people really really believe in what we're doing right now. And at the same time the exact same time as the money rolls into your account, you feel an immense pressure. Like, oh, oh my God, like you better deliver now. Um, and which is, you know, again, that, that hasn't been a problem for me, but you really feel that somebody believes in what you're doing. Um, you, you better do well. So that's interesting. Yeah. We don't really talk about these things as well. Right. It's like you raise around, everybody's celebrating, drinking wine, Yeah, <laughs> but then, but then the expectations that come from the investors, and now you're on the other side as well. Uh, you're an investor as well, and 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 I wonder, from from your experience raising more than you know with Vivino 220 million, being an investor on the other side, um, what what makes a difference for an investor to to say yes? Like for, for the founders listening, what would be some some good things they should keep in mind that maybe are not so obvious? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, like a, a couple of things. I, at first, I'll say we talk about the pressure from investors. I I never felt the pressure from the investor themselves. This was me pushing myself because what I thought that, you know the pressure was from them. Because like this is real money. Like, this is a huge amount of money. But it's not like someone walked up to me and say, "Heine, we believe in you. You need you need to bloody deliver." That's just not how they. At least the ones I know. Um, they don't think like that. They they have a portfolio. Some will win, some will fail. They will do whatever they can to support. Um, and I think one learning here is that, like beating up a founder, if it's a great founder, beating up a founder is not going to take you anywhere. 
um, that's just going to create like bad chemistry or whatever. Great founders, nobody beats them up like they beat themselves up. So all you have to do is support them. The great founders will drive themselves and, and do all the beating up themselves that needs to be done. So as a great investor, you support them. And when you're down in a, when they're down in a valley and need to be dragged up, you help them up again. You just, you don't beat them when they're lying down. That's what like poor investors do. So, so yeah, I mean, there's again, something you, you can talk a lot about, but uh, yeah, uh, it's about the people that can they keep going? Can they keep pushing when, when it gets really rough? And I just want to remind everybody it always does. that I want to remind everybody that uh, there's a bunch of great uh, startup advice you can find in Roll Startup on YouTube uh, with Heine. So I'm sure he's digging into this topic in, in depth. Uh, we only have 60 minutes here, but make sure to subscribe to Roll Startup. Listen to all this startup advice, which is coming from experience. Make sure to check it out. Um, coming from and experience wonder, and pain. Thank you. And pain. <laughs> which which is by the way a great topic but, but i just want to stay a little bit on the investor one because another thing that i i find a lot is is especially first time founders they they get tempted to to get the money because they need them and i i see there's this dynamic that mentally they put the investor higher up and they're here right i need to convince somebody to give me something so they're not some conscious about is this in, investor a good person do they care? Are they going to support me? Are we fitting in terms like, you know, maybe talk about that a little bit. Like, Yeah. 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 And I look, I've made those choices too and made some bad of them choices there too, honestly. Um, I remember we're, we're closing around at one point and we're negotiating terms and we're just having trouble with this one investor. They're being really, really difficult. And and they were important. Like as ever, you're running out of cash. You need, you need the money. And my chairman, he calls me and says, Heine, you know, these guys are this difficult right now, closing the round. How the hell do you think they're going to be to work with? Um, and I said, forget about it. Just let me get the money. I'll deal with it later. And that's unfortunately what happens a lot. And it, it, it very often or it can be the same person you're talking to after too. Although I will say that when you're negotiating, people tend to become a little bit more difficult. Um, yeah, yeah. Or you could say that if you have a really difficult negotiation, that's probably as bad as they get, these investors. So if you can handle that, you're probably fine. And honestly, look, this is not something I've sort of thought about a lot, but when I think about the people, the investors I've had, they've actually been most difficult negotiating these uh, deals. So that's probably peak difficulty. So if you can deal with that, you're fine. But be careful. If they're assholes there, they're going to be assholes after too. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Same with employees, I think. Like uh, you know, uh, we we get tempted to get this super peak performer that we can hire for a good uh, for our side salary, but they're a little bit of an a hole. But but hey, it's okay. You know, they they they're a good salesperson. Let's get them on board, and and then you know, at some point the culture starts to rot, and people are not happy with this person. So we don't do that. Like, there's no compromise. You know, in the early days at Vivino we would put in the job ad, no assholes allowed. Simple as that. In the US, we were not allowed, to, they, they, they said you can't do that, but we literally put that in the ads in the early days. Like, I don't care how good you are, you're not gonna be an asshole here. You put it in the ads. We put it in the ads. <laughs> I love it, man. And you mentioned US, and I th this is another major step for you. Um, you realize that to win global, you need to go to the US. So yes. Tell me yeah, about yeah. that and, and, and share think, the story because, because it's also been a, a big moment for you. You, you got to move, you know, one of you has to move and you actually ended up moving with, with your wife, with your kids, which is, which is a big step. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I, when I, hopefully I live to be an old man at some point and I'm not going to be sitting with my, again, hopefully grandkids on my lap and say, hey, we had the chance to move to Silicon Valley and, and do f interesting things. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to do it. That's not me. When I get that chance, I'm going to go for it. And um, and we looked, if you, if you open a phone, an iPhone or an Android, whatever, and look at the apps that are on your phone, the consumer apps, I mean, 80% of our are built in California. They're built in Silicon Valley. And it, when you have a consumer app 
it is it's just let's say it's easier but that's where things happen your odds of winning and succeeding are just much bigger if you're on location in those places and our philosophy was like hey you know win the us and then win the world and that has been true for a lot of especially in in consumer so we felt that was something we had to do yeah and was it was it the right move like if you look backwards now like was like you build a connection you kind of grew everything like did business wise thing happen as as you were expecting and and you achieved the I goals think, that you wanted uh, i think my conclusion now is yes so my conclusion now is yes but not necessarily for the reason that i thought when we moved um i think one we thought that we for instance would be raising a lot of money in the us um we raised uh, some money in the us but not very much um but but the other thing that happened was like just being in the bay area you know visiting apple all the time visiting google all the time talking to facebook even samsung i mean their innovation center is in in the bay area right we 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 used to say hey if you don't have a 415 number it's the short code for san francisco you know you we're not going to call you and and there's some truth in that that it's a special place in in the world of tech and innovation and it really really matters to be there during those crucial times Uh, so yeah. right now US is almost half of our business. So so yes, it's been really important for us. Um and I think somehow it gave us the credibility to go to the next level and really win. We had when I moved over there we had fierce competition in the US from the US. Um and we managed to sort of outmaneuver that competition and and win. So I would say both are important, you know, being coming from a place like Copenhagen where resources are much less expensive, you can build the early stages at a much lower cost and then being in the US uh, to scale it further, I think was really really important. I just I'm just wondering when you moved there, right? Like you've been operating in Denmark. So so what was the 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 first few moves you made the you know the first several months let's say like was it like i got to reach out i got to meet a lot of people have coffee and lunches with people get known in the area like what did you do to maximize your time there yeah it's it, it's it is very much what you just say there so i've been coming to the, to silicon valley for a long time before which meant that i'd sort of slowly built a network um and having lunches with people over there for for a few years before again moving to the bay area moving to silicon valley is a really big move and you really need a lot of funds to be able to do that but going there every six months and every quarter or whatever you know you know rent a cheap motel by the airport and a, a cheap rental car you can drive up to the city and down to the bay, down to silicon valley easily that is highly recommended it's a small investment and um, it can be really useful to build a network there because it is just the heartbeat of the global tech community there's no way around that uh, so So when I when I land there I'm I'm all alone and I actually start doing that. But the first thing I always do is when I meet somebody it's not like I'm asking anyone of anything but I always tell people what are you looking to do right now. Um and when I traveled in there in the early days from like 10 2010 to 2013 it was very often just hey let's get some attention around this app because we didn't feel like we get enough attention. So I would have lunch with all kinds of random people in the industry and people are incredibly helpful incredibly friendly so so for me it was yeah i mean just just tell them what's going on maybe they know somebody and that's how i sort of built the network there uh, over time so i think uh, yeah have a clear goal what you want to do but but it's okay that things are a little bit random yeah the silicon valley love to to mention this word serendipity right like where you kind yeah. of you have to allow a little bit of fuzz to has to kind of random factor to happen but but the other thing that's i think you might you might think it's common sense and you're taking it for granted like what you mentioned is like be curious and and, and try to help people like if Heine, we, we met in copenhagen a couple of weeks ago we had a lot of espresso macchiatos you know but yes. but what you what you did i mean You could be just like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Let's go. No, you ask me and my co-author Cristobal. You ask us, what are you guys up to? What do you need help with? What, are, what you know? What's your goals? Like, you you wanna you wanna know people and you wanna see how you can help them. That's how you build connections and networks. And and I I think it's really important because there's so many founders out there going to conferences. They're excited. They want to sell their product or they need something and and they're never asking the other person what do they want? What are their goals? So and, and and like the culture in Silicon Valley, I mean, 
there, there are mostly good things to say about it. And obviously, it's not everything's perfect. But it's a really giving culture. I mean, it is a culture where people do take a lot of lunches and coffee and say, hey, let's just have a chat. Like, I'm not asking for anything, but just let's have a chat. And uh, I've really enjoyed that and really want to give back uh, in the same way because I think really Silicon Valley does that. So did you start uh, meeting some of these uh, kick-ass CEOs of tech companies, just you know, having lunches, coffees, on events? Any any specific kind of cool people that you met in, during this period? Yeah, that's a good. I mean, I, like, I'll tell you a story about. I'll tell you one at least that not that I, obviously I met a lot of fantastic people and and went out to all the HQs and saw a lot of great people, but very early on, one of the guys that sort of or the people that came out of the Danish ecosystem before we did was Zendesk, right? So the the support company, and when we traveled out there in, let's say, I can't even remember, maybe 11 or 12, maybe 11 or something, we just sent him a random email and said, hey, do you want to have lunch? And he said, yes. Um, and obviously, you know, I mean, I love that. I think that's amazing. And I'm trying to give back to to other people that, you know, you share your experience, what's it like out here and so on. Um, so, so I think that's really important. And uh, yeah, I met a lot of great people there. I love it. And since you mentioned previously the word pain and struggles, and, and we were having discussion previously that we don't really talk about much about the, the, the other side of the story, right? We, we look at the success of Vivino, we look at the success of the companies, and it seems like oh, these people are just rock stars and they don't have problems and challenges. But but can you maybe share some of the the failures, the challenges, the difficulties like like during the the, the difficult times? And what do you guys do when when shit hits the fan, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I think a couple of things on that. What what's really really important here is uh, to build uh, the trust around you in good times, right? So so don't be a dick when the when the good times are there. Meaning your investors, your people, everyone. Make sure they trust you. Make sure they like you. Make sure they believe in you, right? So when something hits you can call them. And uh, because if you're a dick to them in, in good times, they will be dicks to you in bad times. So so that's incredibly important. I think when it comes to struggles and so on, I think privately or personally, you know, moving to the US was really, really difficult, right? You know, kids were three kids and they were eight, uh, 10, and, uh, 12 and, and 16, right? So 16 year old girl. And in my head, thinking, yeah, oh my God, she's so lucky. I mean, she's going to go to an American high school. I mean, Tupac went to the same high school. How cool is that? And, and I didn't think about that this 16-year-old girl was going to walk into high school all alone. And, and that was incredibly difficult for her, right? She's, she's done really well for herself and is a strong young woman now. But, but that was hard, right, to be, to be in that situation. So, so what do you do? What do you do when an emergency happens? Like something breaks, uh, there's an outage, there's like whatever, like something really major happens. How do you, what's the mental process? How do you remain calm so you can, you can also lead the team from a, from a more productive state? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very sort of solution oriented. So I will panic mentally, obviously, and not maybe have a couple of nights where I don't sleep, but, um, uh, but I pretty quickly sort of say, okay, what, what do we do? I'm always looking for action. What do we do? Who can we call? Um, and, uh, and that comes back to what we said earlier. Like, if you built a good network around you, if you've built great investor relations and, and people trust you, they're going to back you. Um, and I, I'm not the best at generally asking for help. Uh, but when I have to, I will. And, and when I do, <laughs> my, the track record is good people really want to help you when you when you ask them but but you don't ask them enough i would say generally no i can relate i'm i'm not so good in asking for help but every time i do it actually is really helpful uh, yeah. people people want to help and and you help them in in their bad times but when you have a bad time you you kind of like uh i don't want to bother people why should yeah. i but but do you do something and and, and here my a little bit sort of like asking because i also want to share the 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 practical you know, day-to-day -day things that people do. Some people are writing a journal, and um, I, I personally have this thing when when some bad times are coming. I, I take a, one of these yeah. notebook and I write down all the things that stress me, 
and I try to measure them, you know, from one to 10, how much is this impactful? And then I put them in two, in two columns. One is the things I can control. One is things I cannot control. So, you know, that's my way. I'm very structured spreadsheet kind of person. And, and yeah. then I kind of try to see what are the things I can control and what are some ideas of, or who can help me to. So, so that's how I organize my yeah. Oh, yeah. management plan, right? Yeah, I love that. I mean, when it's been really bad, I've also done a little bit of writing and not with any specific purpose and say, okay, what actually happened? And just put it down in a document that maybe never to be looked at again. But I think really that helps you mentally. So so that's one thing. The other thing, I go straight, I usually just go into action. I say, okay, good. What are your options? Okay, you're running out of cash. What are we doing? Who are the people that can help us, you know, fundraise? And then I like writing lists and start working on those lists. And it, obviously, you know, you be a little bit careful with just not doing, I mean, just not doing something. You got to be a somewhat, go towards some kind of goal. But it, I think it does help to do something, right? You're not going to sit in a corner and, and watch Netflix. I don't think that's helpful, right? So make a list, rank it, and then say, okay, let's start work on these things. What are the chances of these things succeeding? That's always what I do too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I'm doing a lot of research now on crisis management because of our upcoming book, and I hope to include some examples from, from our conversation as well. Uh, but, but it's some crisis, you can kind of have this, window of pre-crisis right like because there is a crisis coming to your industry maybe it's going to hit you in three months from now or four months right so you can you can actually do some preparation but there are other type of crises that there's no pre-crisis period it's just something hits and you got you gotta go and and i wonder like okay you you told me how how you how manage it yourself but but in crisis you you also the the shield for your team so, yeah. so what do you do when when an emergency happens, when a crisis happens, to to keep your teams focused on on what matters at the moment? Yeah, I, I think for good and bad, um, I I'm not gonna say I sort of talk it down, but but I am the optimist, right? I am really the optimist, and and so like as an example, when when COVID happened, right? Um, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know, are the sales going to disappear totally and we have no cash? So we actually put, pushed the brakes right away. So as soon as we saw this coming, we started pushing the brakes. No hiring, no marketing. We cut the cost all the way down. So this is like February 2020, right? But then once you reach March, things go up and it's like, holy crap, we're selling a lot more than we expected. Uh, so, so that was good. But at the same time, I was doing other things too. And, and, um, for instance, look, I, I think, okay, what could be the worst thing? Well, the worst thing here could be that we can't ship. Like we make our living on, on people selling wine through our platform. If they can't deliver, we're in trouble. So, um, so at that point I called the team and said, okay, guys, um, first of all, I checked internally. This was, this, this was in the U S and, and we had periods in Italy, for instance, where we couldn't deliver at all. They shut it down and Hong Kong too. I was like, okay, this is not good. If this happens in the US or in several markets at the same time, we're in big trouble. So at that point, I called the product team and said, hey guys, uh, what can we do? Uh, how quickly could we build something for pickups? Um, and we talked back and forward. At the same time, I talked to legal in the US and say, could this happen? And they said, it's extremely unlikely. Uh, we are food, wine, obviously. Um, we are food, and they—they—it's they, almost impossible to shut down those deliveries. So, so I always worked on different options and see, hey, do we have a plan B and a plan C? And it also helps you mentally quite a bit to have to talk about those things at least. I love it, man. You do kind of a pre-mortem. You try to evaluate what are the potential failure points, and then you build it backwards and see if there's something within our uh, control that we can do to mitigate the risk at least, or or look for some other opportunities uh, out there with the resources that we have. And it's actually interesting that for you guys, uh, probably the pandemic had a little bit of the opposite effect that you know people started drinking more and and trying to kind of <laughs> you know deal with the crisis. We did really home. well. Let's put it that way. Fantastic! And it's just a, it's just a, you know a evidence that sometimes crisis could be the biggest opportunity. Yeah. Um, so 
Amazing, amazing. So, Hani, uh, we have a few more minutes, and I actually want to turn the conversation a little bit about the uh, role startup. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a subscriber. I'm following. I'm learning a lot. So, tell me about the platform. Why did you decide to to start it? I mean, you can start whatever you want now with your background, with your connections. But then you decided, let me let me give back. Let me start teaching uh, founders and entrepreneurs uh, how to be better in what they do. Tell me about the platform, where yeah. do people find it, and why did you even start? Yeah, first, uh, what I'm trying to do is give people very hands-on advice. So it's very precise, and it's like list, and I try to sort of people that don't have time to read long books, that they can go there and get some like 10, 15 minutes of clear advice on doing something very, very specific. Um, so that's always been my objective. It's also how I think, like, let's go, boom, 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 uh, and sort of, Keep it as short as possible and, and as much information as possible. And, and really the reason why I started, apart from giving back and that being incredibly satisfying, gratifying, I enjoy it very much. Actually, one of the reasons why I started it was when I stepped back as CEO the first time, it became pretty clear to me that I needed to stop looking at all these numbers. Obviously, I couldn't tell the team what to do. And so I had to back off on some things. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, a lot I'm a sort of an obsessed person, right? Pretty typical founder, like we're going to go, 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 right? And at some point I say, hey, you can't do all these Vivino things because you're going to end up telling people what to do and you're not supposed to tell people what to do anymore. You're not the CEO. And then I said to myself, I need something else to be obsessed about. And that's really when I started saying, okay, what could be a fun project right now? And then I just like, it was obviously crap when I started, but it got better and better. And now it's it's become a really, you know, honestly something I'm quite proud of. We have around whatever, 60, 70 videos out there and and, and we speak to around 100,000 founders every month now. So so it's really cool. Yeah, and it's uh, it's very structured. I, I love like this, the step-by-steps. And one of the videos I, I recently watched was around um, the importance of personal branding and you actually had some other experts uh, sharing their ideas. Um, talk to me about that, because I shared with you prior to the podcast that I, I work with many founders, and and I'm shocked how few of them do anything about their personal brand. Yeah. Because, you know, I've been doing it for years. Obviously, you, you told me you've been to more than 100 podcasts. You, you do a lot yourself. Tell me about why is it important to build your personal brand as a founder? Yeah. I think I think it's important because it's it's like a muscle that you have and you can use, and uh, I mean in an early stage of a startup and 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 these the we the two experts we had on, we talked about this. Take a thing like LinkedIn, right? If you build some B two B thing, LinkedIn is an incredible platform uh, where you'll find other people and create awareness on whatever product you have, and and when you build something new like this, you might not know a lot of people. And LinkedIn can really get you out there. And the bigger that muscle is on LinkedIn, again, LinkedIn as an example, um, you know, you it, it could be what gets your startup off the ground. So, so I really believe in that to have sort of a muscle. You have to be careful. You shouldn't be obsessed by it. You shouldn't spend all your time on there. Um, but, but it's a really good muscle to have when you launch something new and so on. You can get a lot of eyeballs on, and eyeballs can be hard these days. Yeah, and you don't have to come up with uh, reinventing the wheel and come up with some super original stuff. You just you just share your thoughts, you share your lessons from your journey. Like it's more like this whole idea of documenting, right? Like today I had this meeting, this is what I learned. Or like you talk about your journey, you talk about the things you care about, you talk about, I mean, you could talk about wine and like uh, investment, like whatever, right? What are the things that you care about and the people that you meet through your journey? There's a lot of people out there that we relate to that. So we can talk about that for, for ages <laughs> and weeks. For but sure. but just to, to wrap up, I'm, I'm curious and I'm sure everybody here is curious. What's next for Heine? What's the what's the next uh, focus? It's a good, it's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure I have a sort of lockdown totally. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that I really enjoy the investing part uh, more than I expected. I've always felt in my career that I, I was going to do one thing. I'm going to go crazy and go like all in on one thing at the time. Uh, but I have, you know, since I started the YouTube channel and talking to more and more founders, really enjoyed that part of the business. And I have been able to sort of keep a distance too and help them in the way they need to be helped. You, you should not tell founders what to do. You can help them and support them. Uh, but you should not tell them what to do. So it could be something in that direction. I think 
you know, um, Raw Star, I'm definitely going to keep going. I think we talked about it a little bit too, considering maybe doing a podcast too. Uh, I think that could be fun. Not maybe a different format, but uh, yeah, you need to subscribe to figure out what that's going to be. But but yeah, I'm excited to, to try some new things in the future. Now, after the announcement that you enjoy investing, you will receive 50 pitch decks after Yeah, this. that's going to be rough. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you for, for being here, for sharing. Uh, and maybe just uh, finally, where could people find you? You already mentioned the role startup, uh, you know, like what are the projects you're on and where could people find you, get in touch? Yeah, sure. I'm, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find on, on LinkedIn. If you can spell my name, if you can't, then... You know, it's going to be tricky, but um, but try that. But obviously on, on YouTube, Raw Startup, um, please check out the channel and uh, give us a comment or whatever. I'm also on other platforms, but those two are my main platforms. I love it. Thank you so much, Heine. Yeah, Thanks, everybody, pleasure. for being with us, uh, for making it to the end of the episode. <laughs> Keep listening. Make sure to share this episode if you enjoyed it with, with somebody that will enjoy it as well. Uh, this is... 138 so means there's 137 more episodes if you go to spotify apple podcast or youtube so if you enjoyed that one subscribe and every week we're going to bring you another super exciting guest as honey honey thank you for being with us see you next time next thank you pleasure. mastery thank you guys for listening make sure to subscribe to my monthly newsletter by visiting stoyanyankov.com and also learn about the PERFORM methodology and the PERFORM book, as well as our various personal and team coaching offers. Stay tuned and keep performing.